When I was a kid, I studied the piano, not because I wanted to, but because my mother uh, forced it on all of us. I mean, my brother studied violin, and I took piano and hated it. And, and it wasn't until getting to high school, which was a place called the High School of Music and Art in New York City, where if you entered on piano, you had to take a second instrument. And I was given a French horn, and which enabled me to say, to say, bye-bye uh, uh, to the piano, which I, re I really hated studying the Bach preludes and, and, uh, and, 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 and struggling through Beethoven sonatas and all that, you know. So I took up the French horn and, and became a very good French horn player mm -hmm. and, um, in fact, was given a scholarship to Yale University School of Music to play the French horn. Um, unfortunately, I was only 16 years old when I went to college, which uh, being a kid from the Bronx in New York, all of a sudden thrust into the Ivy League, didn't really, wasn't really a comfortable fit for me to begin with. So I kind of struggled through four years at Yale. But um, during that time, I suppose, well, actually, when I was when I was still back in high school, the high school of music and art, um, mm -hmm. okay, I was chosen to conduct on one of the, uh, the high school of music and art. First of all, let me just explain because it's all part of my career. Uh, it was an, an amazing place, and there are many people, uh, many well-known musicians who have come out of the high school of music and art in New York. Uh, but um, uh, as an elective, I took a course in conducting and um, did pretty well. And I was chosen to conduct on one of the yearly concerts that were given by the senior orchestra at the High School of Music and Art. The senior orchestra, at that time, being on the level of many rather good small city orchestras. It was, I mean, it really was quite, quite extraordinary. And I conducted on that concert. It was the Overture to Deflatabouse, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And as a matter of fact, on the same program, conducting the first movement from the was um, famous conductor who conducted the entire uh, Beethoven Symphony series. The name will come to me anyway. Mm -hmm. So I started conducting, and when I and when I got to Yale, because I was. I was going to say hired because I was uh, admitted to Yale uh, to play the French horn. That's what I did. And I played in, in a symphony orchestra. But at the same time, I got to meet a gentleman by the name of David Shire, mm -hmm. was a music major at Yale. And we became pretty good friends. And, and he had a writing partner, a librettist by the name of Richard Maltby. Mm -hmm. And, and they wrote musicals at college. And um, they wrote a musical, and they needed a conductor, and they were going to hire the man who was the conductor of the Yale Glee Club. And I said, you don't know, you don't want him, you want me. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Let me do it, I can do that. So um, I did that, and then continued after graduation to come back to Yale to conduct a few more of their musicals. And at the same time, I started orchestrating some of them. I mean, as, as I was going through this process, learning about orchestration, learning about people, learning about 
um, theater, mm -hmm. um, learning about colors and music, learning about about um, music and dance, learning at, about music and lighting, and learning all these 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 ancillary things that happens when a musician gets ensconces himself or herself in the theater, mm -hmm. because you know the theater, as opposed um, uh, to just being engulfed in music you're you know you're in a whole other life with people with actors with actresses particularly actresses and and you know it becomes part of your life and this expanded my own sense of of what i was going to do as a musician mm -hmm. first i thought i was going to be a professional french horn player mm -hmm. and that all of a sudden began to change with, with, with being thrust into the theater. Mm -hmm. When I was in back, in, back in New York, uh, some years after graduation, a few different things happened. And by the way, not that they'll ever get finished, but I started working on my memoirs about it six months ago. And so far, there's about a thousand pages, and, and, and I haven't even touched oh. <laughs> most of the stories. But, but, I, I have I have found, and this is part of an explanation about my career, mm -hmm. that I didn't do anything. Things happened, mm -hmm. and I'm sure there were a lot of people in in the music business, particularly, who might say the same thing. That that because at Yale, for example, uh, I had several close friends, including John Badham and Peter Hunt, who was a wonderful director. And Austin Pendleton, who's a wonderful actor and, and, and writer, th those influences, those connections started to, to take root after Yale. Mm -hmm. And for example, I got involved with Austin in the writing of a musical that took up the next 15 years of my life and became the, the most famous unproduced musical on Broadway. And it was called it was called Booth is Back in Town. It's a musical we will one day finish. Okay, okay. it's about the, the Booth family of actors in the middle of the nineteenth century. Anyway, uh, I also continued my friendship with John Badham, and he was doing no. He he had gone to a summer theater where I did a lot of work as a composer and conductor called the Williamstown Theater Festival in Williamstown, Massachusetts which is also the home of Williams College, the fabulous college, if you, if you, if you don't know it. Uh, it was actually where Stephen Sondheim went to school. Mm -hmm. But John Badham went to Williamstown to direct a stage version of Whose Life Is It Anyway? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then I heard he was doing the movie. Mm -hmm. And I said, John, I really want to do the score for this film. Oh. And it probably was the easiest job he ever got because he said, he said, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean it. That's how this happened. Now, John and I knew each other, and he knew that I had been writing a lot of music for the theater. In fact, uh, before this, I was the, the composer in residence for um, the American, Conservator American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, where I had written tons of as uh, somebody once referred to it, accidental music, actually incidental music. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was not the fact that I knew how to write music 
for drama and for comedy was not unknown to John Badham. Mm -hmm. So when he said, sure, okay, he just, you know, mm -hmm. threw it up on the ceiling to see if it would stick, you know. And, and, and what is interesting is that it took, when was that film? I think 1981. A CD was just released of it about three or four years ago. That's how long it took for anybody to hear this score other than me in my own head, you know. Mm -hmm. And it is released on Entrada Records. It, this is not a, a sales pitch, by the way. Before even that happened, my conducting career started to take some strides. I mean, David Shire and Richard Maltby were creating a musical supposedly for Broadway called How Do You Do, I Love You. Mm -hmm. They created this musical in, in the late 1970s. There were two things about that, three things, actually. It, it was called How Do You Do I Love You? It, you know, the music was sort of the pop music of the day. Mm -hmm. And the two other important things, well, three important things, actually. Um, the show was choreographed by Michael Bennett. Mm -hmm who became the creator of A Chorus Line, mm. okay? The show was orchestrated by Jonathan Tunick, uh, and he and I were in the same class in high school. And there was a third thing. Uh, oh, yes. The star of the show was a lady by the name of Phyllis Newman, who was rather, you know, pretty much a star during, that, during the 70s. Television did some films. And she was... Married, married to, um, oh, uh, Adolph Green. Mm -hmm. Adolph Green, who was the partner of Betty Comden, they created some great musicals and musical films. Amongst, amongst them was On the Town. Now, th this, this musical, How Do You Do I Love You? We were playing in theaters in the round mm -hmm. across the eastern seaboard, which meant there was a theater in Gatlingsburg, Maryland. There was a theater in outside of Baltimore. There was a theater outside of Philadelphia. All these musical, I don't know if you have them in Europe, but they are theaters in the round, quite large. They're tents, they're like musical tents, mm -hmm. which are primarily for musicals. And, and, and every musical that has ever been on Broadway gets turned into sort of a, a, a show that eventually will play music tents. Mm -hmm. It's I think just, we have know, something in Germany, uh, the in, in Hamburg, uh, for the Lion yeah. King. So uh, very exactly. great okay. tents, something. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that, that's the kind of venues that this piece was playing in. So we'd gotten to close to New York. Our last stop was Westbury, Long Island, which is about, oh gosh, as well as I can remember, about 20, 30 miles out of, out of Manhattan. The other thing that would happen, we were there for like, uh, I think two weeks, that Adolph Green, being Phyllis the star's husband, would come to every performance, mm -hmm. all right? And, and, and because it's a theater in the round, the conductor didn't kind of just pop out from the pit. The conductor, because there was no pit with a you know basement or anything, the conductor would have to go through the audience, through an aisle, which I call a vomitory, go through the aisle, get to the center of the theater, sit down and conduct. Now, Adolph Green would come up behind me every night before a performance and whistle some obscure piece of classical music. And the joke was that I was supposed to be really pissed off because now I'm going to be thinking about this 
whatever this piece of music was. And he had a great musical intellect, by the way. So he would come up every night and whistle something in my ear before I'd go down to conduct the show. One night, he comes up behind me and he says, Lenny's here tonight. Hmm? And I freaked. I said, oh, my God. I trundled down the aisle to the pit. And because the conductor, when you're sitting in your seat for theater in the round, you look across the stage and you see the other that side of the audience. So I look up and there's Leonard Bernstein staring me right in the face. Wow. And I said, oh, geez. well, I conducted that show that night mm -hmm. as if it, like it was a Mahler symphony. You know, and the musicians are even looking at me, what, what, what's wrong with Arthur? What's the matter with him? Where is he going with this? Mm -hmm. And I was going nuts. The show ends, and I go back up the aisle, and all sweated in my tux, and, whatnot, and, and Adolf is there, and he says, come to Phyllis's dressing room, come meet Lenny. And I, oh my God. I walked, <laughs> now remember, in New York City, at that time, Leonard Bernstein was, how should I put it? He was an idol. He was an icon. He was a god. He was, he was, he was what all of us um, uh, understood about what it was to be a musician was mm -hmm. encompassed in Leonard Bernstein. So I walk into this dressing room. Mm -hmm. He gets up from a chair, grabs my hand. He says, young man, you should be conducting Mahler. Wow. I did him and I said, I thought I was. And of course, the whole room burst into laughter. He sat with me for about 45 minutes and gave me not a lecture, but just we sat and talked about conducting and talked about the business and whatnot. And I left that room about four or five inches off the ground. And so it was it was not only was I a, am a, am I a great fan of his music, always will be. But here was this 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 accolade. Here was this this coat of armor that this man gave me. You know. Mm -hmm. So anyway, th that was sort of an important element in my life in many ways. But at the same time, I was starting to compose music for some television shows in New York. Mm -hmm. I met a gentleman who handled all the business business music affairs for David Suskind. I don't know if that may, name means anything to you. No. David Suskind used to have a television talk show. He was he was the most, uh, how should I put it, before people like David Frost hmm? and any others, there was David Suskind. Hmm. And um, he was on for quite some time. He was, he was, um, uh, and, and he had a company called Talent Associates, and he used to produce um, productions for the Hallmark Hall of Fame. Mm. Okay. So I was brought in to write music for a production of a play by Arthur Miller called mm. The Price. All right. Mm -hmm. And I wrote what turned out to be there was no music throughout. The, the show, but it was there was a, a whole opening theme and a closing theme, and and the, and the production was with George C. Scott and Colleen Dewurst 
and uh, Barry Sullivan. So it, it was it was a you know an important television. Production. So I wrote this, and there and from that point on, I began uh, to write music for oh three or four more productions of, of the Hallmark Clover thing. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, I I became friendly with the man who was sort of David Susskind's lieutenant mm-hmm. who handled everything. So he was sort of like a managing director, producer. Mm-hmm. His name is Alan Shane. And Alan Shane was producing a set of, what would I call them, holiday movies for television. Mm-hmm. Very, very wonderful uh, group of, of, of holiday pictures. The first one of which was called a House Without a Christmas Tree, mm-hmm. which starred Jason Robards and, and various other people. And so I was hired to write the music for this. And the next year they did another one about Easter. And then mm-hmm. they did one about St. Valentine's Day. And, and like four or five of these holiday specials, they were mm-hmm. hour and a half movies uh, on NBC. And I, I, I was composing music for all of these. Alan Shane then moved to California, where he became head of television for Warner Brothers. Okay? Okay? okay. <laughs> oh. So, at the same time, I am in a separation from um, my then wife and am offered the job of music director for the Los Angeles company of a chorus line. So I, w- I was sort of keeping my, you know, my, my, oh, I forgot to, I forgot to tell you before this, after the incident with Leonard Bernstein, I was hired to be the music director for Promises, Promises, which mm-hmm. was rock. And, and, and I'm jumping around, I know, but, but this is how, you know, as I said, things happened. I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And so, I was hired particularly because of Jonathan Tunick influencing Bert Bachrach that I Bert Bachrach that I was the right person for this. Mm-hmm. And I was hired and was told by the most important producer on Broadway, David Merrick, that because I was a theater man, I had to keep control over what Bert Bachrach was doing because he was not a theater man, he was a recording man. So I'm given this this sort of, how should I put it, this mission <laughs> to be in charge of Burt Bachrach, which was stupid, you know, because Burt Bachrach was, was for many years, the, the, the top of his career, the, of, of, of the recording business. And we had an incident. We were rehearsing um, one of the songs from Promises, Promises, and the song was called She Likes Basketball, mm-hmm. which the dear, dear Jerry Orbach sang. And it was a waltz, but it was a fast waltz. And I was in there conducting the waltz in one. You don't go one, two, three, one. You don't conduct like that. Mm-hmm. One, two, three, one. Because that will slow down the orchestra. Mm-hmm. And Bert comes into the pit. God, I'm telling you all this stuff that I haven't told anybody. <laughs> And he, and, and he says, Arthur, you can't conduct that. Well, you got to conduct that in three. And I said, Bert, please. The, the, the orchestra's not going to fall. It's going to be ragged. It's going to be 
sloppy. It's going to be heavy. Well, the next week I got my notice. A week before we opened in New York, we had already played Boston, Philadelphia, and we're in Washington, and I got my notice. I was fired because I, I gave some sass to Bert Bachrock. Okay. Hmm. Licked my wounds with that, you know, and then went back to New York. So, but anyway, so now I'm jumping ahead to a chorus line. So Michael Bennett, who knew me from the show, from the, the, the show we did in, 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 the, in the music tents, uh, wanted me to conduct a Los Angeles company of a chorus line. And it was perfect timing because I wanted to get, get away from New York and, and, and uh, was in the midst of a separation and whatnot. So I said, sure. What had, so what had happened um, at the same time is that, as I said, my, my work, I had just begun a career writing music for television in New York. But it now, through no doing of my own, this had now um, segued to California because of Alan Shane being there, the man who was the producer for David Susskind. And so here I am in California. Um, I left out another beat. And I, I don't know how important it is, but I had already done a couple of things in California. I had done a movie of the week called The Prince of Central Park. Mm-hmm. And I had a, a, a few things, in, including a, a pilot. So, so here I was in California with, with, with the ideal situation. I had a job conducting every night. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was starting to make sort of inroads into composing and met a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, agent, um, Carol Faith, and we hit it off, and she took me on, and I started getting a couple of jobs, and quickly found that even though I thought that the ideal situation was not having to work until the evening to go to the theater, which leaving me, which thus leaving me all that free time during the day to do nothing but compose. I found that it doesn't quite work that way. Mm-hmm. That, that your life is so geared to the theater time clock mm-hmm. that 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 uh, you're never free from the truth that after that by four or five o'clock you have to be eating, getting ready, and going to a theater. Mm-hmm. And What's more, conducting a chorus line was sort of a, an odd, it was an odd position because the pit was covered, right? And you conduct, the conductor had a television monitor in the pit. And, and so he, he could see the stage and singers could see him. Mm-hmm also television monitors and it was really uncomfortable i gotta tell you mm-hmm. sitting under this cover and there was a a lady who was um marvin hamlish's what would you call her i guess an amanuensis who would travel around 
to all the companies that were currently running with a chorus line, because it had become an enormous, enormous hit at this point. Just making sure that all the music was, was right, you know. And she came to Los Angeles, and this is, we had already done about, oh, some 400 performances of the show in Los Angeles. And she said, listen, Arthur, I have a new orchestration for what I did for love. And I said, why? We've been, we've been, what's the problem with the one we've done 400 times? Well, Marvin wants it because it's the orchestration he's using in a London, in the London production and he likes it. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. I said, but you know, we, we got to rehearse it. I'm not going to just throw it in. It's fine. So we called the rehearsal of the orchestra and, and, uh, and Michael Bennett, who created the show, happened to be in Los Angeles at that point because he was casting understudies. So we run through this new orchestration, what had happened is that it was, in a, it was in a different key than the orchestration we're using. But not only that, it was, I think, a fourth higher in pitch than what we were using in Los Angeles. For, 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 um, and, and, and so the instrumentation, the orchestration sounded strange because instruments were playing in not their most comfortable registers, and it just didn't, it, it just didn't work. In other words, they, it, it, they didn't rewrite the orchestration for the lady playing the role in Los Angeles. They took the orchestration in London and just, you know, just transposed it up, oh. you know. So it didn't quite work. And I went to Michael Bennett, uh, and, we, and we put it into the show that night. And I went to Michael Bennett afterwards, and I said, Michael, Michael, uh, this orchestration is horrible. It really, it really sucks. And he said, well, you know, it's what Marvin wants. I said, well, okay, it just sounds terrible. So a week later, I'm, I'm in my dressing room, and there's, a, there's an intercom. It says, Arthur, there's a phone call for you in the stage manager's office. I said, okay. I went up to the stage manager's office, and it was Marvin Hamish calling from London. Hmm. And he says, Arthur, I understand you're not going to do the new orchestration. I said, no, Marvin, that's not true. He said, well, they, they all, I was told, Fran told me you're not going to do it. Hmm? I said, no, I said, I said, no, I didn't say I wasn't going to do it. I said, it sucks. Not that I wasn't going to do it. Um, week later, I was fired. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God I was fired after 400 performances, which meant essentially that now my life sort of began to take hold in Los Angeles. So mm -hmm. this is a long way of getting around to, to that point. Uh, I did a couple of not, not terribly important television movies, and I did one feature. I actually, at this time, I did a, I did a, a, a picture in, in Italy mm -hmm. that starred a um, lady who was... Uh, sort of a petite sex bomb in the 80s. And she was in, I remember she was in the cast of, um, um, she was in a film called Butterfly. Uh, somebody has to remember what I'm talking about. She was married to the man who owned one of the hotels in Las Vegas. Anyway, yeah. it, the fact that it was in Italy wasn't really that important. Um, I'll think of it. In any case, it was around this time that the whole thing with John Badham happened. Mm -hmm. and. And, and I said, I wanted to do Whose Life Is It Anyway. 
And he said, sure. So I did that, and I'm trying to remember. Oh, oh, and shortly after that, I was approached by the producers of a series called, a new series called Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Mm -hmm. And they were directed to me by Alan Shane, who was the man with David Susskind, who then took over Warner Brothers TV. And this series, um, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, was kind of an ideal situation for me because, it, first of all, it kept me busy. And the, the format of the show, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the episodes, but it became quite famous here. It was with Kate Jackson and Bruce Buxleitner. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the format was that every week, every week the, the show would, would have a different set of heavies, meaning the heavies one week might be Hungarian, they might be Russian, they might be French or, or Bolivian. So every week, I was taking a theme, mm -hmm. a main theme, and sort of reworking it and distorting it and turning it upside down and inside out, but with a flavor that matched whatever the nationality was of the heavies, mm -hmm. okay? Oh. Which became sort of like a, a great sandbox for me to work in. Mm -hmm. uh, but because I was classically trained, so to speak, and because my, my my life began at the age of four, when my mother would put on a station in New York, WQXR, the classical station, so I would wake up every morning to classical music. So over my lifetime, I became my classical music bona fides, bona fides were very good. So when presented with, say, an episode of Scarecrow and Mrs. King, where she is being drugged by some Russian spies, and she doesn't know it, but she's teeter-tottering on a parapet on the top of a building, I said, oh, this is like a Prokofiev ballet. So I knew the, the, the elements to use that I could draw upon from Prokofiev to make it very, very funny. And in fact, they, they did an episode that was shot in Munich where she is waiting for for um, uh, uh, the scarecrow underneath a, a famous clock in Munich. You might know the one I'm referring to. It's very famous. And, um, in any case, I started the opening music of this episode and it sounded like a Brandenburg concerto. Mm -hmm. okay. And it was playing like a Brandenburg concerto and all of a sudden, the scarecrow theme pops in and the whole orchestra broke up because I was, this is what I was doing. And every episode finding ways to, you know, inculcate this theme into wherever we were in the world. Mm -hmm. So this was great fun. It was great fun. And, and um, it kept me very, very busy. During that time, I was also doing a couple of more movies for, for John Batham. I think it was during this time that Stakeout came up. Oh, no, no, no. There's, there's another story. I'm, I'm leaving out the fun part. So I had done Whose Life Is It Any? And I read, or my agent, Carol Faith, says, you know, John Badham, your friend John, is doing a movie called Blue Thunder. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, okay, well, 
So I called John. I said, John, what's what's up with Blue Thunder? He said, Oh, Arthur, we want Tangerine Dream. Mm-hmm. Because as as you know from the film, it's very techno and it's all about, you know, spying gizmos and all that. So they wanted that sound. Mm-hmm. Now, I had been involved be- just before that with a very strange series called The Phoenix, which nobody knows. But it was this strange series about this creature that is, arrives in a shell on Earth and he's supposed to be the shell, the, the tomb is supposed to be opened 5,000 years later and he comes out and he saves the world from disease and hunger and whatnot. Yeah, I, just silly. Anyway, I had delved into using a synthesizer, which before that I hadn't really got into. So when I hear that that Batum, they want to use Tangerine Dream, mm-hmm. and because, you know, I'm a musician, I have a brain, I understand what the elements were that were so, that people were so taken with, with Tangerine Dream, and what they did, they did incredibly well, obviously, but I understood what the elements were. So I said, John, I want to bring you a tape, just listen to it. And I had on this tape a bunch of things I put on from this show, The Phoenix, for which I had used synthesizer. Mm-hmm. And John calls me one day, Arthur, what is this shit? And I thought, oh, my God, what's happened? He says, what is this crap you sent me? He said, what, did your daughter write this? He said, John. He said, well, you bought this big house and you have a mortgage to pay pay off. I guess we better hire you for for Blue Thunder. That was John's Batum, John Batum's way of being humorous. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay. Thank you, John. Thank you. This is going to be great. This is going to be great. So I came to look at a cut of the film. And the editor, Frank Morris, who just, God bless him, just recently passed away, dear, dear man, and a wonderful editor, had temp-tracked the entire picture with a lot of different things. I mean, John Williams and Tangerine Dream and this and that. You know the whole purpose of temp-tracking, I assume. Okay, so, so that the producers or people can hear something before the score is, is created. Mm-hmm. All right. So I contact a couple of chaps, young chaps who were just getting into the business, who were utilizing a new synthesizer. And I went to them and I said, look, I have this score to create for this motion picture. And but what it's going to be, it's going to be a symphonic score, but I want it on synthesizers. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, okay. And we started working. I started giving uh, Brian Banks, and um, he's going to kill me because I can't remember his name. Brian, and I'll think of it later, <laughs> like so many other names. And I started giving them these symphonic scores, and we'd sit at this box, you know, picking out sounds. In other words, translating what I had heard orchestrally mm-hmm. into, you know, the, the sounds on the, the um, what's that instrument? What's that synthesizer? Oh, oh, God, it's still used. Anyway, so we did this, and I had started taking kind of a strange turn on this score. I had sort of taken the lead character his neurosis. He was sort of very neurotic helicopter pilot with the LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department. And I had sort of gone neurotic in the music. Mm-hmm. You know, what's his name from Jaws? Uh, Rush, uh, Rush Schneider? 
Roy Scheider. Thank you. So Roy Scheider, who plays the hero in Blue Thunder, I had tuned into his, his sort of neurosis about the fact that there seemed to be this sinister element in LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, what else is new, that was connected with the FBI, and there was this new helicopter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I had gone, as I said, for sort of a neurotic synthesizer. How should I put it? It was really dark, edgy, and neurotic. I had finished about, oh, a third of the score. And um, it was time for John Batham and the editor, Frank Morris, plus three or four of John's assistants to hear what I had done. At that time, cutting edge computerized studio uh, in, in, in the Silver Lake area of Los Angeles, working on mixing this music into the film, etc. So John and the entourage comes to the studio to hear my first efforts. And we're all going out to dinner afterwards. So we play through you know, there's probably seven or eight music cues. We're finished. And John turns to the rest of the folks. He says, listen, uh, you guys meet me at the restaurant. I want to talk to Arthur. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, shit. Oh. He sits down. He says, Arthur, I hate this. Now, I didn't know if he was, if it was the same kind of joke he pulled on me, you know, mm-hmm. beforehand. He said, I really hate this. Hmm. I said, and I said, okay, John, talk to me. Tell me, you know. He said, look, when Roy Scheider steals that helicopter, I want the audience to stand up and cheer. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, why didn't you tell me that to begin with? Hmm. There, thereby went home and just totally recharged and and reorganized and started writing based on a theme, Mm -hmm. which became, you know, after the movie was used for all sorts of commercials and stuff like that. I suppose it was a lesson to some extent for John Mm -hmm. and for me as a composer, which I then afterwards would bring it to any conversation I had with a director. I said, just tell me how you want the audience to feel. Mm-hmm. You don't, we don't have to talk about the fact that it's a car driving through mountains. I can see that. What do you want the audience to feel? Mm-hmm. And that sort of became, I don't want to say a shortcut because that's dismissing what I think is the simple brilliance of doing that. Tell me how you want the audience to feel. You know, uh, so I rewrote that score, and it was very successful. And then, before we were even finished uh, uh, mixing Blue Thunder, John calls and says, listen, Arthur, stop what you're doing. We have this other picture that I just was brought on to. They fired the director, and I'm taking it over to a thing called War Games. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, okay. That sounds great. He said, come over. I'm working on, I'm having to reshoot a bunch of scenes that the other director did. Whatnot, he said. And I'm, I'm not. I don't remember. I'm a little bit fuzzy on on, on, on exactly when. 
mm-hmm. any of these things were said or happened. He said, but I think in a couple of weeks there'll be something for you to see. But, you know, forget about Blue Thunder, it's done. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so finally I got, got to see War Games. Um, not yet I saw the movie, but I want to. You haven't seen it? No, unfortunately. Oh my God! You gotta see it. You, it, 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 you, you have to see it, if no other reason, in conjunction with me, mm-hmm. because it's you know it's it, it, it is I suppose it, it, it is the most the highest profile film that I did during that time, and mm-hmm. it's a wonderful film, absolutely wonderful film. It's a, it's a delight. And now it's not on Blu-ray, as is, you know, everything else. But so this may not make a whole lot of sense if you haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you have some idea of what it's about. It's about the young boy, Matthew Broderick, who is very good at computers. And he accidentally sets up, he sets up, a, he hacks into a program mm-hmm. in the Pentagon. And at the Pentagon, they think that Russia is attacking us. Ooh. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, oh, you got to see the movie. Uh, anyway, that all went very, very, very well. And, and so what was happening with me at that time was that I was enjoying moderate success as a composer mm-hmm. and becoming known and getting my agent receiving a number of calls for my services. And at the same time, I think it was about at that same time that I won an Emmy for my music for Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Mm-hmm. Oh. So in Hollywood terms, man, I was hot. Ooh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not in terms. I was just, you know, busy and I was glad that I was busy. And in fact, my agent calls and says, Listen, there's, there's a man by the name of Cameron. He's a director, and he has a movie that he's doing that he'd love to show you. He and his partner would like to show you because they're interested in doing the score. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, okay. And I went over to an office, and Mr. Cameron and his partner had a film called um, Terminator. Film mm-hmm. called Terminator. And they said, let's watch it. I'd like you to watch it. Mm-hmm. I watched it. And they had Tim track the entire film with Blue Thunder. So I was very, you know, I, 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 of course, I, I thought, oh, that, that's very flattering. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I had just about signed a contract to do the music for a film called Lost in America mm-hmm. with Al Brooks. And it was a film that I adored, and and I adored Albert Brooks. And to me, it was, you know, it, 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 it was kind of exactly the kind of film that I wanted to do because it was a comedy. Mm-hmm. And and having just done two heavy, you know, uh, Blue Thunder and War Games and all that. So I watched Terminator, and I turned it down. Mm-hmm. Now, of course one can extrapolate and look 20 years later and say, God damn it. What would have happened had I done Terminator? 
<laughs> but one cannot look back, correct? Mm-hmm. One cannot look back and, 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 and uh, you know, we, we all make our choices for a reason. In any case, so I was quite busy doing motion pictures and a lot of uh, good or bad television. You know, it's all, there were, there were a few television productions that I was very, very pleased and very proud of and very fond of that I did. One, for example, was a, a, a remake of Inherit the Wind, the great play which starred Jason Robards and Kirk Douglas. I was very proud of that. There were some others. I, I, I don't want to try and go through them because, and because there were so many of them. that. But it was work. For me, it was all sort of a well-paying sandbox, mm-hmm. you know. I had done a film with John Badham called Nick of Time mm-hmm. with Johnny Depp, which I believe may be my best score, which nobody's heard because the picture wasn't, wasn't a great success. But and I'd done this, and at the same time, I was feeling, I was missing something. Mm-hmm. And uh, what had happened is that Los Angeles, there was a great, um, there was the, 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 the riots in Los Angeles after the Rodney King thing. And from my house, you could see Los Angeles burning. And it's made a huge impression on me. Mm-hmm. And But the way it, it translated for me is that Los Angeles was a mess, that Los Angeles needed a calming influence. Mm-hmm. And I decided to form an orchestra that gave free concerts mm-hmm. in the park, in Griffith Park. And and it was called, it is, was, is, and will be called Symphony in the Glen, G-L-E-N. Mm-hmm. Okay. Of course, it was incredibly hubris on my part to believe that what we were doing was going to change Los Angeles. I wasn't trying to change Los Angeles. What I was trying to do, mm-hmm. and I didn't recognize, recognize this until many years later, is that I was trying to recreate New York for mm-hmm. myself in Los Angeles. Because as a kid, my first experiences with live symphony music was my mother dragging me to park concerts. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, why can't this be done here? Mm-hmm. Now, over the years, I've received thousands of answers to that question, why it can't be done in Los Angeles, which Los Angeles is not New York. but that being said, so I decided to form this nonprofit organization to give free concerts in Griffith Park, which is a beautiful park, and it's it's actually the largest urban park in the world. Oh. And we started giving four or five concerts a year. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it had to be limited to certain times of the year when it's uh, when when you're avoiding rain and you're not out in the in the, you know uh, or it's not raining or it's not too hot whatever and this began to become my obsession mm-hmm. maybe I shouldn't say obsession um, raison d'être okay mm-hmm. and I started easing away from composing because I had become so engulfed mm-hmm. in the creation of this organization. And by the way, was having a great time conducting Beethoven symphonies and such, mm-hmm. because I'm a pretty good conductor. I know my stuff. And 
now, and I'm encompassing a lot of time, man. Now, over the past year or so, I'm beginning to feel that I really want to get back to doing some composing. Mm-hmm. I'm very good at it, and there's no reason I shouldn't be doing it. Although, I have been doing a lot of symphonic composing over these past 10, 12, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the music that has ultimately been performed by Symphony in the Glen, and I don't know, I, I think you know about the thing we did uh, three years ago with uh, Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, uh, Observations. Observations, yeah. So I was keeping very busy composing. Whenever either I had an idea for a piece or a musician would say, hey, why don't you write me a concerto? And usually I'd say, well, leave me alone. I want to write. I don't want to write a concerto for you. And then I'd go home and think about it, say, oh, that's an interesting idea. And I'd write something. So my hand has been in composing all these years. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so now I'm wanting to slide back onto the film composing radar screen. Because also my my personal vision about composing has somewhat changed over the years, mm-hmm. partially because of writing symphonic pieces and, and other things, and 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 uh, having um, been using the computer for for now for eight ten years in in composition, it also sort of guides your thinking about about what you're doing musically and. All sorts of things. So that's sort of where I am right now. Mm-hmm. Any questions? <laughs> About observations, from whom comes the text that uh, Leonard Nimoy uh, recites? Oh, oh, that was written by wonderful, wonderful man, Dr. Edwin Krupp, mm-hmm. who is the uh, director of the Griffith Observatory, which is a wonderful observatory. He and I sort of collaborated. I had written the music, you know, um, it was in the computer with all the proper sounds and whatnot. And I said, here's what I was thinking in this section. And this is what I sort of had in mind. He said, Arthur, go away. Let me think him. Let me hear it and think about it. So he started thinking about it and came up with a whole scenario regarding Galileo. This, who, for, who was being memorialized, co- commemorated in this concert, it being the four, 400th anniversary of his his um, uh, inventions with the telescope. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and and, and um, because Leonard Nimoy is a uh, one of the largest donors to the observatory mm-hmm. and good friends with the observatory folk, we were fortunate that they were able to to lasso him to do this. But we had a great time doing it. We had a great time doing it. Mm-hmm. So the collaboration and with uh, Nimoy was um, great? I had thought that the reading should be more impassioned mm-hmm. than he saw it. But that's only because I'm the composer, mm-hmm. right? But he did a wonderful job, and but it was very sort of more didactic and more kind of straightforward than I thought it should be. But, you know, I'm not the star he is. And he did a wonderful job. He's terrific, you know, and and we had a a good time doing it. Most recently, we've been doing Halloween concerts Mm -hmm. at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles. 
which is a great place. It's, it's one of the most beautiful outdoor venues in the country. And, you know, the, all summer long, they have, you know, traveling acts, stars and, you know, singers and whatnot. And, but they reserve the last Sunday in October for Symphony in the Glen to do Eek at the Greek. Oh. And, uh, yeah, and, and they have been enormous fun. One of the things that I did the first year, having found out that there isn't that much great symphonic music that was actually written with Halloween in mind, mm -hmm. other than the Sansons' Dance Macabre, Mm -hmm. and Mazorksky's Night on Bald Mountain, and one or two others, and you can't keep repeating them every year. So I thought, my God, I'm going to have a problem if we're going to do this every year, as the Greek theater people said they wanted to do, they wanted to make it a yearly thing. I'm going to have a problem finding Halloween music. Mm -hmm. So, aha, Arthur, you better write something. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of horror movies you could use. <laughs> Well, but but you see, here's the thing: when you there is, but it's if if it's not in a context that a mixed audience of kids and families mm -hmm. and and uh, can attribute to horror, mm -hmm. it's, it's it's just playing horror music, and who knows what horror music is? I mean, is ba 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 bum? Is that horror? I don't know. Uh, for some people, I don't know. <laughs> some people. So, so, but what I'm saying is, in trying to um, attract an audience that needs some kind of association with the music. Mm -hmm. So, I, I happen to be reading Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. Mm -hmm. And I said, ah, here's an idea. So, I wrote a symphonic setting of the Telltale Heart, and and we have included it as part of the program every year. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very good, actually, if I say so myself. And this past year was really great, because this past uh, Halloween, because dear, dear old friend of mine from Yale is the actor Stacy Keach. Mm -hmm. And we were supposed to have, when I say supposed to, we were sort of halfway promised that um, James Spader would mm -hmm. read it this year, but he got involved with this television series he's doing and whatnot. He's a friend of the managing director of the Greek theater. So here we are, we're left without some anybody to read this thing. So I picked up the phone and called Stacy Keach and I said, Stacy, we haven't spoken in years, um, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, I'd love to do it. So anyway, Stacy Keach read The Telltale Heart and he killed it. He was, he, 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 he just, knocked it out of the ballpark. He was so phenomenal. So well, this is all in, in terms of my composing has sort of kept a pace with me, you know, um, and, and, and observations was, um, was all part of it. I mean, I, 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 I stopped, I stopped composing motion picture music only because I wasn't doing that. Music I compose, many people say, sounds like a motion picture score for an unproduced motion picture, mm -hmm. which sort of irks me a little bit because I, 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 I'd like to think that I've that I have the ability to write music that stands on its own, um, uh, which you know, equal amount of people think think I do. 
Anyway, um, so, uh, but now, as I said, um, I am looking back to getting back into doing some film scoring. Mm -hmm. Do you like the modern movie industry? Do you miss <laughs> it? <laughs> uh, I think a funny story. My favorite movies to watch are from the 30s and 40s. Mm -hmm. I see. <laughs> For all sorts of reasons. Because I felt that it was extraordinary storytelling. And, and I just love watching the creative the genius of the people who did the lighting and uh, and the directors and and the actors who, who even in grade B, grade C movies, there is something to adore about, for me, mm -hmm. about films of those times. And if they're black and white, even better. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a Luddite. I'm not a Luddite about films. I just, I have come to, to see a lot of the films They are high action, uh, computer generated. Mm -hmm. I don't find the stories to be particularly interesting most mm -hmm. for the most part. I don't find any charm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I have to recognize that that is the industry which I may or may not re-enter now as a composer. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really circumventing your ask really answering your question uh, because I I, 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 I I don't really know what I think of the film industry today I mean I, every once in a while there's a film that pops up that I think is wonderful you know and and there's a couple of really good film composers out there now uh, and, and I think I can contribute something to the film industry as it is now mm -hmm. how's that for an answer sounds good and uh, <laughs> yeah I, i think it's it's, it's a little bit uh, hmm, hard uh, when you grow up with these all classic movies from the 40s and yes, uh, it is hard it is hard and, and then and, today the the, uh, the cgi and the action music and such things it's, yes yeah. yes and the heavy speakers in the theaters and all that When I started writing music for, for film and for film, I had a piece of paper and a pencil, you know, and my mind, my music came, my head, my ears to my shoulders, to my arms, to my fingers, to the paper. You know, now it's a different it's it, it's different for the filmmaking. It's different for the composing. It's different in, in every aspect. But. Um, If I call myself a composer, there is no reason that I should not be able to uh, adapt or adopt what films are about these days. It's all music, man. It's all music. It's mm -hmm. 12 tones. You can only rearrange them in so many ways, whether you have 10 banks of computers or you have a piano. That's all you're dealing with. And, and it's not your computers. It's your brain. It's your mind. It's your ear. Mm -hmm. And... and um, Oh, I was going to say, don't get me started on this. You already did. I'm trying to think of a specific film that had I been um, um, uh, engaged to write the music, would I have approached it any differently than the person who did it? I don't know, because you you, you, you can't, as a film com composer, you are for hire. Mm 
Mm-hmm. It's different when I write a music for my symphony, music for my symphony in the Glen. I'm my own boss. I write when I want to write. But you are for hire, so you have to you have to address what the film is about, and you have to address what the tastes may be of the director, and the producers, and whatnot. And that that is part of the business mm-hmm. of composing music for film. You know, and but I like to believe that I'm uh, experienced enough and creative enough that I can do that. And at the same time, oh, bring something of myself to that, to the CGI, <laughs> you know. So again, which may be hubris on my part, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So you could write music for the next uh, Brookheim movie? <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, of course. Great. Yeah. Well done. Tell him, and uh, I'm looking forward. Without the listening, hey. <laughs> a fan uh, said I should ask you what can you tell about Stakeout, and do you think a release is possible one day? Uh, oh God! Now you 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 know, for years, Disney would not allow anybody to do a recording of it. Oh. Yeah, and I'm, I don't want to get into this because I don't really understand it, except now Entrada says, you know what, we have the go-ahead, we can do it. Mm-hmm. So I think they're going to, I think they're going to do Stakeout and, and, and the other, the film called Another Stakeout, which is really a terrific score. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to that happening. Don't ask me what happened at Disney that now allows for that. I have no idea mm-hmm. because, as you know, in, in terms of being... Film composing, I haven't been in touch with Disney for a long time, but apparently that can now be done. And believe me, when that happens, it will be all over Facebook. To the extent that I know how to use Facebook, it'll be over all over Facebook and mm-hmm. anywhere else because they, they're good scores and they're wonderful films and they should be released, you know. And so... That's the only answer that I, I, I can give to that question. And and I appreciate the fact that I have, that I have some fans out there. <laughs> so when you speak to this person, say thank you for being a fan of music. Mm-hmm. And as soon as it can be done, it will be done. Mm-hmm. I'll tell him. And another uh, fan would know what about Scarecrow is and Mrs. King? About our well, they are out on DVDs. Mm-hmm. They are out on DVDs. Uh-huh. Now, what's interesting is that I've been working with Entrada Records. They want to do a double CD Ooh. of the music from another series called The Wizard, mm-hmm. which was a wonderful series that many people don't even know about because it's Star, who was a midget, David Rappaport, British man, who was in a film called Time Bandits. Mm. And he did this wonderful series where he was this inventor who created all these things to catch bad guys. Mm-hmm. It was a fabulous series. And Entrada wants to do a CD of the music from this. So that's been in the works for over a year now. It's really my own laziness that hasn't propelled it further, faster. But I'm going to get on that, you know. And But Stakeout will be happening. That mm-hmm. will be But Scarecrow and Mrs. King, and I just found this out recently, mm-hmm. the DVDs are out for every season. Mm-hmm. 
And it, 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 was a, it was a great fun series. And as I said, it was my big sandbox, you know, as a composer. And another fan wants to know uh, if there often is confusion between you and the pianist, <laughs> Arthur Rubinstein. <laughs> oh, God, this, is, this has followed me my entire life. Mm -hmm. uh, and I address this to, to your fan. Yes, there has been this confusion. And in fact, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, and was in New York playing French horn mm -hmm. professionally, playing for recording sessions and whatnot, I got hired to play for a jingle. Do you use that same expression for a commercial mm -hmm. for a jingle? Yeah. Yep. To play for an orchestra that was doing a jingle. And so I did this, and I went to the musicians' union to pick up my check, which was supposed to be for 60-some-odd dollars or something mm -hmm. at the time. And the lady behind the, the cage where the money, the checks would be put out, she hands me two checks. And one of them is for six-some-odd-thousand dollars from RCA Victor. Mm -hmm. And it says Arthur Rubenstein. Now, remember, in 1969, I think it was, he added the H to his first name. So it was no longer Arthur, it was Arthur. Mm -hmm. So she gives me this other check, and I said, I can't take this. This is not mine. To make a long story short, I was at the union the entire day then trying to straighten out why I couldn't take this check of Arthur Rubenstein's. And even when I was at Yale, uh, his daughter, who was a, was maybe, I don't know if, she, if she, she's still with us, was a photographer. She was married to a man, Bill Coffin, mm -hmm. who was one of the early freedom riders in the 50s with the, the uh, segregation thing mm -hmm. uh, issue in the United States. And anyway, they were at Yale. He was a, he was a minister at Yale, and she was there. And I used to get letters for Arthur Rubenstein. And I would just ship them over to Bill Coffin and his wife and say, you know, this is yours. <laughs> one time, funny story, actually. One time, I'm still, you know, no, no, I was living out here in Los Angeles. I was over here. And the phone rings like six in the morning. Mm -hmm. And it's a dear, dear lady who was obviously from... I think she was from Texas or um, New Mexico. I don't remember where, but with a very heavy Texan, Texas kind of accident, accent, ac Texas accident, <laughs> accent. <laughs> getting into politics, politics. Now. Um, and, and she starts explaining that, or that she always takes her son, who's a young piano student to hear me whenever I am in, I forget which town, maybe Houston or something, mm -hmm. but she missed the concert this time. Hmm. Now, I had never done this before, but this lady was so sweet, I started answering her to go like this, and I said, oh, I'm sorry. I don't know why I did this. But I was putting on what, in my mind, was Arthur Rubenstein's Polish accent mm -hmm. to disappoint this lady. And we're having this conversation, and she says, well, you know, I don't play piano, I play fiddle. And I said, oh, that's very nice, very nice. And she said, but I don't play classical music. I play for country bake-offs. Now, I don't know if you know what a country bake-off is. They are country fairs mm -hmm. with prizes for baking. Oh. Okay? And mm -hmm. there's always musicians. So she plays fiddle, country mm -hmm. fiddle. She says, yeah, yeah. And she says, and in fact, 
I've been on Johnny Carson's show a few times playing fiddle. I said, oh, very nice, very nice. And she says, um, just, you know, but we're going to be out there um, uh, next year. And I'm going to come visit you. I'm going to let you know I want to come visit you. And I thought for a moment, you know, oh, my God. I said, well, next year I'm going to be in Europe or near playing concerts. I said, oh, gosh, well, we hope we'll catch you the next time you're in Houston or Amarillo, wherever it was. And I breathed a sigh of relief. <laughs> and in fact, when I was at Yale, mm-hmm. I was playing principal French horn in the New Haven Symphony, which was a pretty good, you know, middle-sized, mid-sized um, American Symphony Orchestra. And Arthur Rubinstein came as soloist. Mm-hmm. And playing, I think, a Rachmaninoff concerto or something. And so he, we rehearsed with him, and then at the break, you know, in the rehearsal, the manager of the orchestra thought, what a good idea. He brought me into Arthur, Arthur Rubenstein into the dressing room, and he was sitting there with a towel around his neck and smoking a cigar. And he says, Maestro, I'd like you to meet our principal French horn player. His name is Arthur Rubenstein. So he looks up, he looks at me, then he says, very nice. <laughs> and back to his cigar. And if there had been a hole that I could have fallen into, fallen into at the moment, I would have. <laughs> so that was the one time I met him. So, and in fact, occasionally, I get royalties for Anton Rubinstein. Mm-hmm. I'll see on my royalty report from BMI, Broadcast Music Inc., it'll say Spring Song, a Rubinstein. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't been much money. I haven't taken much money from the Anton Rubinstein estate, maybe $6.40 or something, you know. But so, but in, in, in fact, and it wasn't because of the name, but Arthur Rubinstein was my favorite pianist. Mm-hmm. I have an entire collection of his that are very, that I cherish. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you have that B in the middle of your name to uh, yes. make a difference? <laughs> No, 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 no. That, no, that's, that was, my middle name is Benjamin. Oh. Which is actually kind of a nice name. I like the name. At one point, I thought of dropping the Arthur mm-hmm. and going to Benjamin. We said, I like the name. It's a very nice. Yeah. Hebrew, very Hebraic, you know. Mm-hmm. But no, the B, the B is for real. It wasn't, it wasn't put on to... As a differentiation, yeah. So, yeah. What is your uh, favorite instrument within or outside an orchestra to play or to compose for? Oh God, no, nothing really. I mean, I don't know. Horn players say that I really give them a hard time in pieces that I write because I'm a horn player. Mm-hmm. I like them all. They're all, they're all, all the instruments are wonderful. Um, uh, I even like the violas. And some of you, you some of your musicians' friends, if they hear this, will will get a giggle out of that. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there's a, a world of viola jokes. And and what, what's interesting is that every instrument, the player of every the instrumental players, they all fall in fall into characteristics based on the instrument they play. Mm-hmm. Which again, some of your instrumental Players who listening, they'll know exactly what I mean. You oh. know, oboe players are neurotic. 
the brass are all Republicans. Okay. <laughs> the harp players are always fidgeting. The violinists, the women violinists, were always talking about shoes, where to buy shoes. Oh, this goes, but this goes, this goes back so many years now. <laughs> when I was doing a series every week, and we and we had a core of players that were hired for four, five, six years, and I always noticed that before we started another music cue, they really be talking, and I said, "Come on, please, be, be, be quiet, be quiet." And one day, the engineer said, Arthur, do you want to hear what they're all talking about? He said, let me plug you in. I said, sure. And a few of the ladies are talking about shoe stores and shoe sales. So, <laughs> uh, but they were, all, they were all wonderful musicians and adorable. And um, a few of them, you know, are with me yet in, in, or in concerts and, and whatnot. So. Uh, I don't know how I got into any of this. Oh, you asked me about which which is my favorite instrument. Mm -hmm. They're all my favorite. The orchestra is my favorite. Great. Yeah, what do you think? Is composing music an art or a craft? Oh, dear. Do you mean composing for film? Um, in general. So. Yeah, but, but it's, it's different. Um, it's different. Mm. I think it's all craft, no matter what you're composing for. There are, I mean, you first have to, you have to accept the fact that up until there was motion picture, mm -hmm. composers, if they were not writing sonatas or quartets or symphonies, mm -hmm. they were writing for another medium, which mm -hmm. is opera. So once you're writing for an, a, a medium that is in addition to simply composing, you're having to adapt and adopt the craft of that medium too into what you do. So I suppose if I wanted to give a really sly answer, I would say that it becomes craft when you're placed in a situation wherein the music is part of a whole that contains other crafts. Mm -hmm. In other words, is stage lighting an art? It, it, it is artistic, but it's a craft. Mm -hmm. Is stage directing is not an art, it's a craft. So at that point, music, I think, by definition, becomes a craft into which an individual can put their own I guess, artistry mm -hmm. into that craft. Right. Did I get by that one? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, think that, I think it's true. And I never had to answer that question. Um, um, but once you're in a situation where, where, where you are in a work that is constructed by many crafts, mm -hmm. as is opera, the theater, or motion picture, you become part of that family of craftsmen. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Yeah, what do you think is the best thing about composing? Nothing. Oh. <laughs> It's hard work. <laughs> what is the best thing about composing? There was a time that the best thing about composing is that it gave me a very decent living. Hmm? And it wasn't, I didn't have to be a doctor 
or I didn't have to be an attorney, mm-hmm. or I didn't have to go to an office. So the best thing about composing, you know, it's meant different things at different times in my life. And this is the truth. Mm-hmm. Was as I said, when we started this, I said that I didn't do anything. Things happened. Things happened to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't create myself as a composer or a French horn player or a conductor or any of this. It was all moments in time where there was a, a an inkling that there was something that I could do and then it was presented to me and I said, okay, I can do this. So I never and possibly still do not easily refer to myself as a composer, although I am a composer. Mm-hmm. I write music. I have a flair for the dramatic in my music. I suppose a theatrical flair. I read one review a few years back of my film scores, and it was a British chap, I believe, and I wish I could find him. He said, what he loves about my music is that it all seems to dance. Mm -hmm. It all seems to come from a sense of movement in ballet. And I love that because it is true. It's very true. And I think that that probably, that probably is closest to a sense of who I am. I know that when we're, when I'm working with Symphony in the Glen and we're doing one piece or another, and I will call out to the strings, I'll say, let it dance. Just let it dance. Several several musicians have said, you know, that communicates so clearly what you want it to sound like. And it goes back to my John Badham story. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you want the audience to feel. When when you say let it dance, we know exactly what you want. Mm -hmm. So that, I suppose, is an aspect of me, an aspect of my music, and maybe an aspect of my life uh, dancing through life but that's not quite quite true because now I'm I suffer with a certain amount of sciatica so I can't dance through life I have to sort of slog through life but that's another issue and do you think uh, uh, um, another album of Symphony in the Glen uh, came out or will be released well we will we will you know why because we just have to find the money for it and you know the, the, putting out albums these days is, is, is a dicey affair mm-hmm. affair um, and it costs so much damn money. But Stacy Keach said, I want to record um, um, the Telltale Heart. And we're going to talk right after the right after the holidays. And I'm going to say, okay, you know, if we can find the money, I would love to do it. At the same time, I would record several other pieces that I've written for the Halloween concert specifically. And there's been like four or five pieces that are all a lot of fun and, and pretty good. So the answer to that question is, I am hopeful that we are going to do that this, this coming year. It just means, it just means finding, finding the money. I mean, yeah, I could go abroad to any number of places where it might be cheaper, but I really don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I would prefer to, to have the musicians who played it originally record it. And we'll see. Mm-hmm. It's all about me. Money. Yeah, it's always. And yeah, do you have uh, yeah a dream project, a movie or a TV show that you would love to score existing or not existing? 
<laughs> Every one of them. No, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's so interesting. Look, there are a number of, well, there are a few very good composers in Los Angeles. I don't want to get into names because I don't, I don't want people coming back to me and say, well, what about this bird? What about that? What about that? Because it's not a, there are some good composers in those mm -hmm. I do watch certain films and I think, you know, he didn't get it. Didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a cookie cutter score. We go a cookie cutter score. He opened up his computer and turned on several um, patches and turned on um, uh, some sequences and got his timpani and bass drums and he got his strings and he got his horns and boom, there's a score. Mm. I don't think any composer sets out to do this. I think every composer is trying to be honest to their own artistic spirit. Mm. But because of the dealing with the film industry, dealing with deadlines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and the dealing with tastes of many different people, sometimes Often, most of the time, there is what I call a cookie cutter quality mm -hmm. to many film scores. Do I feel I could have done them better? That's eh, not even important, perhaps, or differently. There, there are my favorite scores, in fact, are those that I hear and I say, my God, that's a piece of work, you know? And unfortunately, they're all from the 30s, 40s, a few from the 50s, a couple from the 60s. Oh. You know, and I mean, every time I hear or watch, for example, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, mm -hmm. with that extraordinary score from Bernard Herrmann, mm -hmm. and I say, that son of a bitch, he really knew how to do that. He really did it. He really did it. You know, or, 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 or you hear, oh, particularly Franz Waxman. Mm. And you hear um, almost anything he did. And you, I, I just sit there in awe. And so are there films I would have liked to do? I don't know. I suppose it's and what's going to happen in the future. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it, it, it may be that 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 uh, and I'm being very honest here. The industry would, would, might say, you know what? You're from the past. You're too old. No. Well, I think that's bullshit. I think that's bullshit. But, but you know, that could happen. That can happen. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a thing about Au Courant. Mm -hmm. And even though my music is very much Au Courant, um, my presence in the industry is not Au Courant. So I have to, you know, do some work to make that so. Mm -hmm. But I will. What are your next uh, projects? Well... That's interesting. This past year at our Halloween concert, I was looking for material because, as I said, it's sometimes it's very hard to find music for a Halloween concert that's going to be accessible to all kinds of to to, an, to a mixed audience. Mm -hmm. But I was I was one of my favorite pieces has always been a piece by Debussy called La Cathédrale Engloutie, the Sunken Cathedral. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful piano piece. And one day, I don't know how I came. Oh, I was looking up because I was interested in, in back background of his writing the piece, and and I read the inspiration for the piece that came from a myth, the myth of the city of East, 
Y apostrophe S, East, which was a mythical city in France. And I think it was like 11th or 12th century. And the myth was that every year the princess would find a knight and make love to him and then kill him. Oh. And now, all the years that I've known this piece, something in the back of my mind said that there's more to this than meets the ear, you know. And I started reading the story of the myth of Is, which made it acceptable as a piece to include on a Halloween concert. Mm -hmm. And our managing director, Barbara Ferris, who's a very good writer, she wrote sort of a a little bit of a of a commentary to be spoken during part of the music about this myth of Is. Mm -hmm. And in fact, as I said, the place was called Y at Y apostrophe S, Is. There was a saying that that a, a place would reach the heights of Is. And in French, it was par, par, is. Mm -hmm. That's what. That's how the name Paris came to be. Oh. It, it was it was associated with the city of East and what a splendid, what an incredibly splendid city it was that every year would, would sink under the water, which the gods, I guess, would punish the princess for having killed every night that came to her bedchamber. And after they did their thing, they would, floodgates would open and the city would drown. Anyway, I'm, I'm really taken by this myth of East. So I, want, I may write a piece called The Myth of East for mm -hmm. orchestra and, and, and maybe even chorus. And so um, that I may do. There's a couple of other things that I want to write. And who knows? That's the other thing about my life. My life used to be all on assignment, mm -hmm. all on assignment and all on schedule. I don't have that. In a way, I miss it because it gets me up, you know, I used, to, I used to be up downstairs in my studio at 6 a.m. every morning starting to write, because I had a deadline. That doesn't happen anymore. So in a way, I sort of would like that for a while, anyhow. You know, I, I, I sort of miss that. Mm -hmm. But uh, there was something else that I... Uh, oh, there's a music that I'm trying to get off the ground that, I, that I'm enamored of. Mm -hmm. And it's a question of getting the, the okay rights to do it, I'll, I'll find something. Mm -hmm. I'll find something to do. You know, I, I always do. When I sit around twiddling my thumbs long enough, it gets me pissed off, and I go downstairs and I and I start writing something. That's how it happens. Mm -hmm. Always have to do something. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Great. No, I can go. No, I can go for a few weeks and lay back and watch movies and. Uh, and cook and do stuff like that. And then after a while, I just start getting very edgy and need to do something, mm -hmm. you know. Oh, there, there, there is another piece. I actually, my one of my obsessions has become the fact that I wrote a, a piece for chorus and chamber orchestra a couple of years ago mm -hmm. um, with a libretto from a friend in New York called Canticles of a Christmas Tide. And it is, uh, I think it's my best music, but I have not been able to garner the forces to get it put on. It means a chorus and instruments. And 
Well, it's been difficult and it's hard to explain because it's it's sort of it's not just a, it's not a piece that can be done by a, a choir in a cathedral at Christmas. A few choirs said, "Well, we'd love to do it." Well, it's a little bit more difficult than that because it requires 17 really good musicians, mm -hmm. which means money, and it requires really good singers because the music that I write is challenging mm -hmm. because of going way back in my life to Leonard Bernstein. It is closer, his, his piece, the, uh, um, the, the Chichester Psalms. Mm -hmm. It has that kind of texture and it's very rhythmic and it's, and it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful piece. And I have been going nuts trying to figure out how to find either a university or, or some group that, uh, and then get a little bit of a grant to do it because it, 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 one day it will be done and we'll talk on Skype and you'll say, my God, I heard your canticles from a Christmas tide. It's wonderful. And I'll say, yes, it is. And thank you. I'm glad you heard it. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm looking forward. Yeah. Almost before the end, a little thing. I call five terms and you tell me just briefly what comes to your mind. Okay. Film music. Music to support a film. Mm -hmm. Orchestra. My first love. My first love. Mm -hmm. No, my second love. My first love was piano, which became my first hate. Oh. Then orchestra. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Great. I'm a terrible pianist. I'm a terrible pianist, by the way. Okay. Um, favorite movie? I can give you three. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah. To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. I watched the other night, I watched Young Frankenstein, which I decided was my favorite comedy of all time. Mm -hmm. And it's one of my favorites. Uh, also, one of my favorites is the film with Catherine Hepburn and the film with Peter O'Toole playing um, King Henry and... Uh, Lion and Winter? Lion and Winter, thank you! Ha! It was just a guess. <laughs> that's, that's one of my very favorites. Mm -hmm. I, I have too many to pick one. I have too many to pick one. You know, All About Eve. That's one of my very favorites, too. Mm-hmm. So they're all movies. Uh, um, I, I don't think I have a movie that's a favorite from the past 30 years. Mm -hmm. I, I love um, Chinatown. Mm -hmm. I think it's a wonderful film. I love, but of course, I love the great films that, that Korngold wrote music for, you know, Captain Blood and, and those. But All About Eve, To Kill a Mockingbird, Lion in Winter, Lawrence of Arabia. Mm -hmm. But last night I watched the 1934 film The Thin Man. Mm -hmm. which is just so wonderful. And, 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 and again, I'm so drawn to those films because of the, the here's the word, artistry mm -hmm. that went into the craft. The artistry that went into lighting these people, the artistry that went into the writing these stories and, and, and the storytelling and, and the artistry that went into the music that was written 
for these films that that conveyed the every emotion that was going into what you were seeing and hearing the actors say was was echoed in these wonderful scores that were written. You know, and, and I guess I'm an old romantic. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Oh, and yeah, the next word, um, Hollywood. Oh dear God. You know, you know what Mel Brooks said about 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 Hollywood, about Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. He said, "Oh, Los Angeles is just like New York, only w- without Manhattan." <laughs> so, you know, it's where I live. I have a lovely home in Los Angeles, and I have the things that keep me busy here. And it's it, it's Los Angeles is a strange place. It's a strange place, and and to a certain degree, they have because I have this home that's up in the hills, and I have a pool, and I'm amongst, amongst the trees, and I look out and see the entire city, and and Pacific Ocean. When I look across, you know, out across my windows and my deck, there, it, to a certain degree, I feel like I'm still on vacation. Mm-hmm. Which is my initial feeling when I came to Los Angeles to work. I said, "God, this is like a vacation." Mm-hmm. The weather, you know. And my friend Joe sends me pictures of Columbus Circle with the snow and the ice and the sleet. And there's a part of me that says, "God, I want to be there." <laughs> <laughs> That's where I want to be. So it's hard for me to talk about Hollywood or Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. It, it, for me, so much in Los Angeles is makeshift. Mm-hmm. Everything is permanent. Everything is makeshift. Everything is being improved upon. Everything is changing. You know, so it's fine. It's mm-hmm. fine. I, I can't think of uh, where else I, I would live. I wouldn't want to live in New York now, because mainly because I could not afford to have anything like like that which I have in Los Angeles, to be honest. And the last end of work or spare time? Oh, spare time. Mm-hmm. Well. The way I love to spend my spare time, I haven't been able to for the past couple of years because of our Halloween concerts. And the way I love to spend it is fishing. Mm-hmm. But it's very specific to a specific place called Martha's Vineyard. Mm-hmm. Martha's Vineyard is a little island off the coast of Massachusetts. It takes about an hour to take a steamer from the a southern tip of Massachusetts to this island and if I had my choice of places that I could spend the rest of my life it would be Martha's Vineyard mm-hmm. and there is nothing that I enjoy more than walking out onto the beach with my rod and reel and some bait mm-hmm. and a chair and a book and a bottle of wine and sitting and waiting for the fish to bite mm-hmm. That's how active I am when mm-hmm. I fish. No, I love fishing. I love fishing, reading. Oh, I just had the experience of, of reading, actually reading a Stephen King novel, which I never had before. Mm-hmm. I read The Shining. Oh. He's a wonderful writer. I didn't realize what a good writer mm-hmm. he was. Aside from being a popular writer, he's a very good writer. You know, in my spare time, and this is the truth, my mind is always going on what I'm going to do next. So it is probably true to say that I never give myself spare time in which I do nothing but relax. Mm-hmm. Because my my mind is a killer because it's always 
revolving around something. Mm -hmm. So you relax when you sleep? Oh, I don't sleep. Oh. Mine, because my mind is awake all the time. Oh, okay. My mind is always on something. Mm -hmm. So my, my sleep is not as long and healthful and restful probably as it should be, but that's the way I've been all my life. Mm -hmm. Oh. How about you? Hmm? What do you? How do you relax? Yeah, sleeping. <laughs> I love sleeping. I, I think I have it from my mother. Um, eight, eight hours or something, no problem. Really? Uh, yeah. Oh, I envy you. I envy you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know what it is? I can't turn it off. I can't turn it off. Mm-hmm. And I can sleep, um, yeah, in any place. Uh, when I yeah, travel by, by, by train or in the bus or car, um, oh, God, just sit God. down and... <laughs> you're, you're very lucky. You're very lucky. Yeah. Uh, I wish I could do that. What kind of music? What kind of? Now, now we're turning the tables. Now I'm going to inter interview you for the next two hours. What? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, have a late. No, uh, just kidding. <laughs> you have an appointment. <laughs> yeah. Very <laughs> spot on. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, um, yeah, I love film uh, music. Um, the modern and a little bit, uh, yeah, the old. So um, yeah, for me it's old uh, from from the 80s and uh, and um, yeah, I'm started uh, to yeah listen to Goldsmith and oh, oh the best oh yeah <laughs> and so yeah I, I listen the to best, best. Logan's Run and such his uh, other yeah. things. He was, as we say here, the real deal. Mm -hmm. And he was really a composer who composed a lot of great music for film, but he was a composer. He was the real deal. And a dear man, he was wonderfully arrogant, and he had every reason to be because he was so good. Mm -hmm. My favorite score of his is for that film called Coma. Oh, yeah. I know that score. <laughs> great, great, great score. And my favorite, I think I've, we've gone through this before, but my favorite score of John Williams mm -hmm. is The Witches of Eastwick. Mm -hmm. And by the way, every year at our, at our Halloween concerts, we end the concert with the devil's dance from The Witches of, Witches of Eastwick. That's wow. how we end every concert, yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. And it's great. Great piece, great piece. Oh, yeah. They're both great. They're both great composers. They're both terrific composers. Mm -hmm. and anyhow. And yeah, and thank you for your time the last uh, two hours. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And okay, we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch and we'll talk soon. Okay, bye. Yeah, bye.